This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to another special social distancing episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast recorded in remote locations around the world. I'm recording this introduction from my room here in London, and in this episode, we're joined by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the UK's former chief rabbi, in conversation with Ritala Shah of the BBC. They discussed how, even in this ongoing coronavirus pandemic, we might still be able to restore the common good in our society and create a truly moral, just, and humane way of living. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you do, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Hello, I'm Ritala Shah, a journalist and broadcaster at the BBC. Welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared, this podcast from Intelligence Squared. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Lord Sachs. These are extraordinary times that we're living in. We're not even together for this recording because obviously uh, we're practicing social distancing. That in itself is a really interesting issue to be talking about the pandemic within the context of your book, because the framing of it is very much about changing the I into the we. It, that's an idea that's being tested during this outbreak of the coronavirus. But doesn't beating the virus depend very much on individuals separating themselves, minimising the social, minimising the we? I think it does. And I think, um, you know, it's going to show us how much we miss the we, how terribly deeper privation it is to be isolated. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's almost like a, a lesson from, from nature itself. Of course, I mean, let's sound several cheers for uh, the social media. I was a little bit critical of them in the book, but they've really come into their own, haven't they? Without uh, without social media, we would be very isolated indeed. But I do think, deprived of these things for a while, we will rediscover what the simple embrace of a handshake is about. You know, what it's like to be able to spend some time with friends. I think we're going to miss the we, and once all this is over, we're going to celebrate it with new te- depth and passion. There is a more cynical view, though, which is that if you think about the panic buying we've seen in recent weeks, there has been an emphasis, or the the people fleeing from northern Italy to southern Italy, the emphasis was firmly on protecting one's own before anyone else. 
Yet crisis brings out the best in us and it brings out the worst in us. And there's been some awful stuff going on. The panic buying, the stockpiling, which began with supermarkets and is now affecting chemists and pharmacies. People, uh, you know, looking after their own to complete disregard of the welfare of others. Others who may be much more vulnerable, much more in need. So um, the bad stuff has all been the I, me, mine stuff. Uh, but there's been incredible good stuff as well. I don't know how many community groups have just grown up almost overnight, contacting people in the neighborhood who are alone, who may be elderly, who may need help, saying, can I do some shopping for you? Can I get some medicines for you? You know, uh, you, you know, getting a, a prayer quorum in a synagogue on an ordinary weekday is quite difficult. I, I just met uh, I was just speaking to a rabbi in, in the West End who maybe, if he's lucky, gets uh, 20 people on a weekday morning for a service. He said, this morning I did the service through social media and we had 2,000 people praying together. So we're coming together in good ways and we're acting selfishly in bad ways. And I think everyone can see the difference. So this is the evidence that we're social beings... But there are moral choices we face as social beings. Uh, what happens when you have to, for instance, choose between visiting elderly parents and, and protecting society? Um, look, I, I happen to believe, as many people did likewise, from Edmund Burke to, to Alexis de Tocqueville, um, that families are, are the matrix of society. So, um, you know, I would never miss out on family but I would never put the health of family at risk and there are ways of doing this and actually social media have really really come into their own They're, you know we're having celebrations a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah you know a, a wedding and these are all being live streamed because there's nobody there because no one wants to expose people to risks but we're using social media luckily we don't have to choose family or society because there are now ways of, of choosing them both. But family should never, ever be secret. So technology has essentially come to the rescue? Yeah, it has, actually. I, 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 uh, you know, there I was knocking it all. And I, I, I humbly retract because... Um, <laughs> everyone's been cheered up. You know, everyone we know has been sending us WhatsApp via WhatsApp or Facebook, little very, very funny videos of people, you know, making fun out of this. Now, we know it's deadly serious, uh, but I do think humour is closely linked to our humanity. And, you know, in the old days, this would have been shared with two or three people. Now it's being shared by people across the world. I'm a rabbi. That means I'm a teacher. I was, I've been te teaching at this time. I mean, I'll be doing so this afternoon and touching people from, you know, from New Zealand to Alaska. So um, I think we'd step back now and say, you know what, um, this technology, when it is all over, when we can finally get back together again, we will thank this technology and say, you know what, it helped us in our hour of need. I should have asked you this at the beginning, really. How is the idea of social isolation affecting you personally? I mean, I can't see my grandchildren. <laughs> it's really sad, actually. Um, but it was funny, you know, uh, six days ago, 
I was giving a Bible class up here in my study using uh, one of these um, one of these technological devices. And five minutes into my lecture, I heard a ping on my phone. I hadn't realised somebody had installed WhatsApp on my phone, and this is the fir- first WhatsApp I have ever received. And it was from my eight-year-old grandson who said, Hi, Grandpa, this is me. And I thought, in the middle of this class where I was teaching right across the world, I thought, wow, you know, family still matters and I can hear and read my grandchildren even if I can't physically be in the same room as them. So that that's a rather lovely silver lining, but this is a crisis that has thrown up hideous moral choices. We've heard from doctors in Italy and in Spain who've had to choose, essentially, who lives and who dies because they simply don't have enough ventilators. How do they resolve the moral quandary that they face on a daily basis? This is, uh, look, this is a crisis, the like of which has not been experienced since the end of World War II. And thank heavens it is not happening as a result of war. Crises always throw these choices up, but this is a horrendous, horrendous global crisis, which is throwing up not only medical issues, but but economic issues. People are losing their jobs. People are going bankrupt. Who knows what's going to happen to the economy? These are really, really, really serious times. Um, I, I just feel we're all going to have to sober up now. We've been coasting along on peace and affluence for a very long time. And we suddenly realized that while this was happening, we were letting our health services and facilities run down. We were underestimating the possibility of this black swan, this unknown unknown, or at least known unknown, of a pandemic. We know that um, terrible things were done to the um, Center for Disease Control in the United States, which was basically dismantled just two years ago. This crisis has shown us just how under-equipped our health service is, just how vulnerable our economy is. Um, We're going to take a very long time, long after the actual physical illnesses are over, to think, you know, how, how did we drift so far and what have we got to do to protect ourselves in the future? And yet there's a lot of debate, especially in the United States right now, about the extent to which we should be prepared to sacrifice the economy in the battle against the coronavirus. I saw one person describe this as saving your granny or your money. Is that a moral choice? In your mind, it seems there's no choice at all. And yet we've had President Trump, in a sense, weigh up that choice. Jobs and stability versus the fate of the elderly. You cannot sacrifice life for economics. Life is sacred. And above all, in my view... The most vulnerable are the ones most deserving of our care, the very young and the very old. To let the very old simply die or simply be isolated, simply be uh, without care, is totally unacceptable. I understand when hard choices have to be made, which life do I save? Then, of course, the standard medical ethics rules apply. But you cannot let elderly people die because it would have a bad impact on the economy. That, that's just crazy. That's just not moral. But if there's a selflessness involved in that, 
If it means that more people will lose their jobs, do you think we've lost then the imperative for acting like that? The fact that we even have to discuss it? Look, when you are governing a country, you always have to weigh considerations. I uh, can't second-guess any prime minister or head of state. I've known some, I've known the kind of complex factors that they have to take into account. What are the health benefits? What are the economic costs? How much will the population stand? Will these regulations be adhered to and so on. So I'm not going to criticise anyone, but I do think the sanctity of life comes high at the, at the very height of our values. And uh, as I've said in the book, what makes a society invulnerable is the way it cares for the vulnerable. Do you think that dealing with the coronavirus could mark an end to populist politics? The scientists and the science, in a way, stand in the way of that sort of populist sloganeering, which is based on emotion rather than facts. Is this the test? Well, I hope so. I I hope so. Populist politics were getting to be very, very disconcerting in terms of the rise of the far right in many countries in Europe. And, of course, a lot of that had to do, frankly, with uh, not just with economics, but with the feeling of, of large immigrant populations and the like. One thing that happens when a country or a world, for that matter, goes through a crisis like the coronavirus pandemic is that somehow we are brought together across ethnic divides. So I think just for that alone, there may be less populist politics in the future. But there hasn't been very much international cooperation. Countries have acted individually. Is that something you're disappointed about? Well, yes and no. The fact is that there has always been a discrepancy for the last generation between the scale of our problems and the scale of our solutions. Our problems, like climate change, are global problems, migration. But our only effective mechanisms for dealing with those problems are national. So there's been this mismatch all along, and we've seen it now with the coronavirus. There is this mismatch, and I don't think it's going to change in the future. Uh, I, I do think that when it comes to science and medicine, you do get global cooperation, but when it comes to politics, you don't and you probably never will. I wonder whether you think if we look at China where they're coming out of the worst effects of this crisis and their economy is beginning to tremble into life. I wonder if you think that China's actually better at dealing with it because it's an authoritarian society. Well, in my book, I argue that we've got to maintain some kind of balance between the I and the we. We have individual responsibility and we have collective responsibility. China is a society that really lives the we at the cost of suppressing the I. So, yes, you can deal with illness and you can deal with the economy much more effectively in a country like China, but do we want to lose that liberty, which has been the mark of Western societies since the 17th century? So I don't think the effectiveness of China here has much relevance for us. We have to find our own ways of being effective because we are not well, China. It, it, they were there was an authoritarian crackdown that effectively did bring the worst effects of this pandemic to an end and allowed the economy to tremble back into life. 
Yeah, I, I personally would take it as a slightly better example. Israel, actually. Uh, Israel is a liberal democracy and it's a highly individualistic culture, but because they know national emergency, they're able to clamp down very fast. I think two people have died so far in Israel and, and there's been a very small number of actual infections. So uh, that to me has been the most effective thus far, although it's clear that Singapore has done exceptionally well as well. Do you think, though, for instance, we're now at a state where China is also providing support to other countries because it believes it's come out of uh, come out of the worst of the crisis? It's showing leadership. This is a way in which the pandemic is changing global power and is perhaps uh, shifting the way in which politics is viewed and the way in which politics uh, is which politics is seen to work. Well, look, you know, we had a great scholar in Britain called Isaiah Berlin. And Elaine, my wife, and I gave a dinner for him to celebrate his 80th birthday. This is, oof, what, um, 23 years ago, I think, or more. And at that birthday party, I said, Sir Isaiah, tell us, look into the crystal ball. Tell us what you see for the 21st century. And he said the 21st century will be the Chinese century. So, I, you know, I, th- I, I think that's been on the cards for a very long time. And I think China is showing leadership now, not because of its politics, but because of its manufacture. It just has more testing kits and more face masks than anyone else. And that's why it's leading. But I do think China will is has become a major force to be reckoned with. And that was evident long before this pandemic. You're deeply religious, and yet Western society is increasingly secular. Do you think faith makes one better prepared for a challenge like this? Well, you know, if you really want anything to read while all this is going on, uh, read the Book of Psalms. I mean, I, I don't know any literature like that that, you know, plums the depths of loneliness, isolation, fear, anxiety, and in the words of the psalmist, out of the depths, I call to you. You know, there is King David who is drowning and he's, his hand is, is waving or not waving but drowning, if you like, and then God kind of seizes his hand and lifts him to safety. I find that kind of literature of the Psalms immensely powerful. And, you know, you don't even have to be hugely religious. You can just read it as poetry. But I do think faith does tell you in that greatest of all lines from the book of Psalms, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The idea that somehow or other we are not alone is a profoundly religious one. I wonder, you've touched on some of this already, and and before we move on to talk about the book, I wonder if you think that we will have changed fundamentally at the end of all this, at the end of three months or four months or a year, however long it takes. Depends on us. You know, uh, Hegel once said, the one thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. So, you know, if that's the way you think about it, we will learn nothing from this. It'll be like, um, you know, the uh, great 
flu epidemic of 1918 to 1920, we will come through unchanged. I think something this big that has brought all humanity to its knees in a remarkably short space of time should not simply pass without our learning something from it. And there are a great number of things we ought to be learning from it. Do you think those are questions that can be asked and answered now in the midst of it? Or is it something that will emerge as, as we can look back? When epoch-making events happen, a lot of people go through them just day by day. That's how they survive, and it's an important survival mechanism. And they come through, and ultimately, the most important thing for them is that they get back to normal life again. But there are some few people who feel we can't go through this and be unchanged. Somehow, God, nature, history, something or other is telling us something that we need to learn. Those people will be permanently changed by this experience. They will become the leaders of the next generation. They are beginning now not to see the answers, but to ask the right questions. What is this teaching us about where we are? So I think already some people are asking the right questions and when this is all over they will find and formulate the right answers. Now it's time for a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Let's move on, if we may now, Lord Sachs, more specifically to the themes in your book. It is very much about putting the emphasis on the we and not the I. You argue that it's something we moved away from. When do you think the change away from we began? It happened in three stages. There was the um, social revolution of the 1960s, which said morality is whatever works for me. Then there was the economic revolution of the 1980s, which, you know, Reaganomics, Thatcherism, which was intended to be just about economics, but which we all remember as Michael Douglas in Wall Street saying, in effect, greed is good. This is about my self-interest. And then uh, the technological revolution of the smartphone and the social media in which, really, social media about the presentation of me, here I am, look at me, like me. So we've had three waves, each of which has put the we, we in the distance, in the background, and the me to the fore. Let's begin with, with the first of those, that change since the 60s. You suggest that that's when we became much more individualistic. 
Isn't another way of framing what has happened since then is that society has simply become more open about its flaws in particular. If you think about the women who were locked up in Ireland in the Magdalen laundries for years for no reason other than they were poor or had a baby out of wedlock, uh, think about the child sex abuse scandals or domestic violence. These were things that were happening. We just didn't talk about them. Yes, I think what happened in the 1960s was, in one respect, a profound liberation, and I have no desire to go back to the way we were in the 1950s. But, you know, I, I, I think the motor car was a profound liberation. I think the plane was a profound liberation. But we now know the costs that we bear because of them. So there were really good things that came out of the 1960s, really good things. But nonetheless, we did lose an awful lot of cohesion as a society and an awful lot of binding, as it were, as families. Uh, marriage went completely out of fashion for quite a long time. You know, I remember going to Newcastle in the late 70s or early 80s and I met a, a um, I met a vicar who said to me, you know, I used to go around the schools teaching children about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. He said, I can't do that anymore because there's a word they don't understand. And I said, do you mean God? And he said, no, I mean Father. So although it was a profound liberation, we had a whole lot of kids growing up in circumstances that brought them poverty and, 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 and misery. But people might argue that they've been given the freedom to challenge those traditional ways of living, to challenge authority and hierarchies. If we think back to the Grenfell fire, people were told to stay put. Those who essentially abandoned that advice, and, and as Jacob Rees-Mogg famously said, anyone sensible should have, those people survived. Those who obeyed uh, perished. Isn't that the, one of the changes since the 60s? And doesn't that mark progress? We've simply refused to accept hierarchies and authorities in the way that we used to. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, ho I hope I don't shock you, but, you know, there's a biblical story uh, about a character called Noah who um, saves himself and his family while the whole world drowns. And um, God tells him he's about to bring a flood on the earth. And Noah does not challenge this at all. In fact, three times the Bible says, and Noah did exactly as God commanded him. And of course, Noah does not become a hero in the Bible. Abraham becomes the hero, and it's Abraham who challenges God and says, God, shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? I call the story of Noah a critique of pure obedience. Judaism is not a religion of pure obedience. Since I am a rabbi, I can tell you I never encountered any obedience whatsoever. But if you live in a world where, as I think you're suggesting, people don't sign up to religious moral codes, isn't the fundamental difficulty that who gets to decide the moral code? The moral code's fragmented. It's embraced more people, arguably. But that means it's not as rigid. Who makes a moral code? The short answer is a society makes a moral code. But a society has to decide that a moral code is necessary. 
Otherwise, you will see what we've been seeing in supermarkets and in pharmacies, individuals only concerned with themselves and not with society as a whole. I mean, a society gets to make its own moral code, but it's always the we of society. And we've been carrying along this idea for a long time that moral codes are made by me, the choosing individual. No. If I choose to live in society and receive its benefits, I have to pay the price. And that price means being socialised. And that means doing what society judges to be in the interests of all of us. And I can challenge that. But, 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 but I do have to internalise it. Isn't society quite good, though, at assisting in that way, in debating and coming to its conclusion? So if you think about something like gay rights, morally unacceptable in the 60s, society has made its own decisions and decided, actually, this is something that we've changed our mind on, that we are inclusive, that we have embraced these people who were outside the moral code. And that's happened in my lifetime, certainly. Society has changed its its stance on many issues, sexual ethics being the chief and most obvious one. But society has now become, in my view, in an incredible way, rigidly puritanical. Because uh, right now, a gay rights activist like Peter Tatchell or a women's liberationist activist like Germaine Greer are, or like um, Selena Todd or like Amber Rudd are being banned from speaking at universities just because they fall on the wrong side of whatever happens to be the cause of the day. And I don't think we are reasoning together as a society and morality means that ability to reason together. I think because we have given up on reasoning, we have chosen instead to ban, to cancel, to call out and to no platform. But isn't that as much a reflection of society trying to reform itself, trying to make sense of a new world, a new world in which identity politics, which is sort of what you're alluding to there, throws up many issues, many differences, creates divisions, but actually reflects the complexity of society too. And this is a period in which, in a sense, we're trying to come to terms with that and perhaps haven't found the answers yet. Well, we are not going to find the answers because we're looking in the wrong place. What we need is to develop sensitivity. What is actually playing out is not ethics, it's politics. When you ban somebody from speaking at a university, you are not doing ethics, you're playing politics. You're not asking what is the right and the good, you are playing games of power. And that is the case that I make in the book. We are trying to make economics and politics do the work of ethics. But they can't do the work of ethics, because ethics is not something I can pay for, and ethics is not something I can achieve through power. Is this also, though, a phase when people who didn't feel they were always treated equally by society are, in a sense, asserting the small space, the small amount of power that they have found? There is, if you like, a hierarchy of belonging, and these people felt they were rather far down the pecking order, and now they're making a loud noise, and actually other people feel crowded out by it. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. But once you turn that into politics instead of ethics, you get identity politics on the one hand, that is the politics of minorities and competitive victimhood, and on the other hand, you get populism, which is the sound 
of those who feel badly done by because everyone else is paying attention to minorities. These two go together. Identity politics on the left and, and populist politics on the right are Siamese twins. They're joined together and they are very, very, very dangerous because we ought to be able to deal with them ethically, and if we try and deal with them politically, we will have divided societies and eventually real violence in society. I hope this horrendous coronavirus will have cured us of these terrible games that have been played in the liberal democracies of the West. Uh, you argue in the book that when society withers, the scope of government increases to fill the gap. Why do you think that's damaging? Because I, I think that we have to exercise our responsibility muscles somehow. Use them or lose them. Any society that becomes totally dependent on the state ultimately uh, becomes a tyranny or a totalitarianism. Liberal democracies of the American and British kind were dependent on very strong civil societies. Just those societies that are springing into action right now during the pandemic, their charities, their congregations, their voluntary associations, their neighbourhood groups, you name them. Those things that are bigger than the individual but smaller than the state, the things that are done because individuals feel responsibilities as well as rights, those are the things that make a healthy society. And all of history shows this and lose that civil society, you will eventually lose liberal democracy. But, but what makes you feel that those things haven't always existed, that they haven't always been there? It's simply that in the good times, we don't notice them, we don't need them. They rise up, they embrace us in times of crisis. France, Germany, Austria, Poland, the Soviet Union, these are places that didn't have civil society. Hegel hated civil society. It was a distraction from the state. Rousseau could, had no time whatsoever for groups like families and charities. All, mainland Europe regarded civil society as a distraction from the serious business of politics. And that is why mainland Europe became the place where freedom was almost lost. Did you, but do you think that is still relevant to the way in which mainland Europe behaves today, treats its citizens today. So when you, to go back to the pandemic, when you think about France and the, the, the strictness of the lockdown, is that the government behaving responsibly? Is that about an absence of the state? What does that tell us about the relationship between the state and its people? I, I, I don't think you can draw any political conclusions from a, from a medical phenomenon from a pandemic. You really can't. It depends what kind of health system they have. It depends on the kind of obedience people have for, for, for the law. Uh, the, the example you gave and that I've given of those uh, citizens of northern Italy, when only northern Italy, Milan and, you know, 16 million Italians, but certainly not the whole place, when tens of thousands got in their cars and drove south, concerned only with their own freedoms, not with everyone else's health and safety, Italy showed just how weak a society can become if people are not used to concern themselves with the common good. And that is one of the 
tragedies of Italy and one of the reasons why the infection rate and death rate is so high. It's a very, very sad thing, but I don't want to make a political point out of a medical tragedy. You're, in a sense, though, your view of the state we're in is quite bleak. Is, there, is this about... Is, is it fair to be that bleak when, as, as, as you've pointed out, and I would agree, that we've seen with the arrival of the pandemic, actually, for every person who's stockpiling loo roll, uh, several others who are creating, you know, new communities on their street in, the, in, in their town? Ritula, the only reason I'm bleak, because I'm not normally a bleak sort of person, I'm, I'm a, I'm a hope, hopeful sort of person. And this is a hopeful sort of book, it really is. And I'm a lot more hopeful now than I was when I wrote the book. But the reason I felt bleak is this. Populist parties have been polling at, on average, 30% throughout Europe for the last several years. That's the highest level since the 1930s. Here in Britain, we had a Labour Party that became a safe haven for anti-Semites. In America... Quite a lot of people, 11 of them in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, have been gunned down in anti-Semitic attacks. Now, if somebody does not see those as warning signs, I don't know where they're looking. Yes, life continues as normal, but I'm hearing the bass note, the disturbing rumble of impending uh, breakdown of liberal democracies. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but 5, 10 years, 15 years down the line. Now, I hope that we will pull ourselves together because of this real catastrophe of the pandemic and say, you know what, we have to recognise that we are one humanity, that we have to recognise that we are a family of nations. We have to integrate people. We have to give people responsibilities as well as rights. We have to speak the language of we as well as I. I think that will come. I'm hopeful that it will come. But don't think that life was going on as normal before all this happened. It really, really was not. I wonder, you, you also point in the book to the 80s and the economic changes that came with that period. I wonder if actually perhaps it's the economists that you should take issue with. The pursuit of efficiency and profits, in a sense, we allowed the economists to become the philosopher kings. No, we didn't. We allowed the CEOs to become the philosopher kings. Economists know better than that. Um, I pointed out that, um, you know, just actually, just as the book came out, um, Bob Iger was, was removed as CEO of Disney. But I pointed out in the book that um, J.P. Morgan of the bank that bears his name said the proper ratio of CEO pay to the lowest paid should be 20 to 1. Whereas Bob Iger's pay was 1,424 times that of the median salary of a Disney employee. This was CEO stuff gone mad. This was not e economists at all. And I say in the book, in the last chapter, that some very weighty economists like Raghuram Rajan, the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, are proposing a new 
kind of economics, as is Sir Ronald Cohen, who is the creator of Britain's first, I think, first venture capitalist, uh, certainly the most successful venture capitalist, who's talking now about doing a different kind of economics called impact economics, where what matters is not just profit, but impact on the environment and on society. So this was not economics run triumphant, this was selfishness run triumphant. Although, and certainly those conversations about uh, how you define wealth, you know, getting beyond GDP are certainly happening. But if you look at the idea of efficiency, which again is, is quite interesting in relation to the pandemic, for instance, we, we've urbanised, cities are very efficient, but actually they are also impersonal. They make the move to the eye more likely. So something that's driven by industrialization, by economics, actually mitigates against the very thing that you would like to propagate, the we. 100%. You're absolutely right. The person who saw that most clearly in the 19th century was Benjamin Disraeli. He actually writes about it in Two Nations. And what happened was because the Industrial Revolution meant that enormous populations were moving from farms and from the countryside to towns and to cities and to factories. And this was having devastating result and Britain became a very I society as a result. What happened then was an extraordinary movement of remoralization through charities, through churches, through educational trusts and all sorts of things, so that whereas Britain was a very I society in 1820, it was an incredibly we society by 1850 and stayed that way until 1950. So I think your analogy is really but, correct. But with, with enormous inequalities, though, I mean, it might have been a we society, but there was a sort of a, a huge population of... of urban poor who were dependent on the sort of slightly rickety goodwill of, of, of paternalistic Victorian industrialists. Yeah, I mean, each, each society did what it could. The last big wee moment that we had uh, in Britain was World War II. Wars do drive people together. And the result of that was, of course, the 1944 Education Act, which guaranteed everyone, however poor you were, uh, a secondary education. I was the beneficiary of that because when I went to university, universities were subsidised. I had a grant. I didn't have to pay fees. If I had been born uh, 40, 40 years later, I don't think I could have gone to university at all. So, you know, Victorian society went as far as it could. Then um, we saw the limits of pure charity and in 1944 the state realized that it had to act but do you think then that it in a sense the fact that people if you talk about millennials they are often resentful of the fact that they're the generation that have for instance in the uk been landed with student loans they can't afford to get on the property ladder are that those are are those the sort of social ills then that lead to a more I society? In a sense, why should I care about you? You have done nothing for me. Yeah, I, I think that was quite a difficult time to be born, actually. You were caught between, you know, our generation, which was the, the boomers, was a very fortunate one. I think the millennials were were quite unfortunate. And I think now Gen Z or Generation Z or iGen, however you call them, those born on or after 1995, 
are busy recovering the we in quite strident ways, perhaps, but they are um, they are becoming much more moral than the millennials were, I think. Is a a more positive way of of thinking about the changes that society is undoubtedly going through, not least because of technology, something you also talk about, is to think about it as as a reformation. Tom Hollander, the historian, talks about us going through this period being like the reformation, where we're seeing literally the reforming of society. (laughs) I hope it isn't a reformation. I really do, because... um... There were 150 years of wars of religion after that, and they only ended in 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. So I hope we can do it a little more peaceably than that. I do think that certain things are going to come through that will change our lives and change our lives for the better. Number one, we are going to realise that the whole world was affected by this terrible pandemic We could, for a while, think it was happening to someone else, somewhere else, halfway across the globe. And suddenly we've seen how interconnected we are. We need that sense of interconnection if we are to, for instance, act globally on climate change. Number two, I hope people will realise just how important it was, not only to be able to speak electronically, but to have neighbours who are willing to do the shopping for them or get do favours for them or get the medicines for them and leave them on the doorstep. I, th- I think people will come out of this saying, you know what, I really, really appreciate the fact that people were there for me and how can I be there for them? I think we're going to have community we. And thirdly, I think we're going to have a national we, which will be patriotic but not nationalistic, which will say, you know what, we came through this together. And we, a lot of people made a lot of sacrifices for the sake of the nation as a whole. So I think the community we, the national we, the global we are all going to be strengthened through this. And it will not need the kind of wars that the Reformation gave rise to. We will indeed rediscover what's really important in life and what's really important in life is when we reach out a hand to another and can do so without worrying about infecting one another i think the we is about to make a comeback and and you are now much more positive about technology than you were in the book Oh, I always loved it, to be honest with you. I was just being a bit of a grouch (laughs) for the sake of the book, you know. I love this technology. I use it all the time. I teach through it. I reach people across the globe. But what I was really saying in the book is don't give up on face-to-face encounters. And uh, whether you are secular and you pray for good medicine, as I do, and good doctors, or whether you are religious and you're praying to God, Please, Almighty, or please, doctors, let us get through this and be able to be face-to-face again. I I have wondered, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, it it certainly has the feel of an Old Testament plague, the wrath of God. Is that that a a way in which you view it? That's a very Christian way of putting it, if I may say so. I'm sure, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure you aren't, Ritula, but, uh, you know, the wrath of God is part of a Christian mythology that the God of the Old Testament is angry and vengeful and the God of the New Testament is kind and forgiving. They're the same God, Ritula. They really, really are. 
what this is is it is 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 the is the sheer human vulnerability to nature that we ignore at our peril and the weaknesses of society that we ignore at our peril and and those things are not the action of uh, a vengeful god they are what happens when a society fails to care for other people, fails to care for the vulnerable, and when it thinks it's immune. We've become so technologically advanced. Who thought we should worry about some tiny little virus? So hubris here is leading to nemesis, but I hope we'll stop it in time. Do you think in the end, though, we have the leadership that we deserve, a leadership that reflects perhaps uh, the more pessimistic aspects of your view of our, our morality or lack of it? Well, either our leaders are going to become much greater through this trial or we're going to have to find some other ones. I don't think we'll be short of them when the time comes, but we have been slightly short of them until now. And you remain optimistic? I remain hopeful. Can I explain a very important distinction, Ritula, which is this. People often think that hope and optimism are the same thing. They're really not. Optimism is the belief that things are going to get better. Hope is the belief that if we work together hard enough, we can make things better. It needs no courage, only a certain naivety to be an optimist, but it sometimes needs a great deal of courage to have hope. No Jew, knowing our people's history and the history of the world, can be an optimist. But no Jew worthy of the name ever gave up hope. Lord Sachs, thank you very much.